Well, I titled the sermon this morning out of the text from last week as we continue this thought, but perhaps from a little different angle. Paul told us that our bodies are not our own. And in so doing, he told us that we have been bought uh, at a price. The Lord Jesus has purchased us with his blood, and as such, our lives, our bodies, everything we have, frankly, is, is not our own. You'll remember earlier in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received, he said to you. So, so even everything we have is gift to us. And that's a wonderful and an important perspective to have. I've done a lot of grumbling this week, and I have to be honest with you, a little pastoral confession time. But I've been grumbling. My time has been, you know, you 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 go hard all week, and and the weekend comes, and your time gets tugged away from this event into that event, and we need to go here, and we have to do this, and find myself grumbling in that, ah, it's the weekend. It's this time I have to to collect myself. And and I have to be honest as well to say that that passage from 1 Corinthians is what came and smacked me across the head like a two-by-four and told me to stop whining. <laughs> stop whining. What do you have that you have not received? It's not your time. It's not your weekend. It's the Lord's. And he gives it to you. And he gives all these other things to you as well. And we are called to be good stewards with them. And the same is true with our body. It's not ours. It's, it's, it's been purchased, in fact. It's been given to us as gift, and then we messed everything up. And then, and then it was purchased back by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, given to us, given to us, but not for us in that sense. For us to some degree, but not merely for us. Well, Paul's going to take this in a different direction today. In fact, when the text gets read as, as Mark read it, if you, had, if you were listening, if you didn't get caught snoozing, um, and, and I question because, because as Mark read it, there should have almost been a collective gasp. <laughs> you know, when, when Paul says to the wife, your body is not, you know, you have no authority over your body, your husband does. You know, it's like, this is just, to, to a culture uh, like ours, they're just like, it just, it's nails on a chalkboard. What? Who says such things? Um, but, but, we take, we go back to the words of Paul, your body is not your own. Now, granted, Paul's going to challenge us here. Paul's talking about things we don't often talk about. Um, you know, 1 Corinthians 7, these passages already, some of what we've had to deal with in 1 Corinthians 6, I, we chose to preach our way through 1 Corinthians because um, it's uncomfortable and it's, and it's awkward. Uh, and so what better thing to do as a pastor than place yourself in a situation where you have to talk about awkward and uncomfortable things, but I guess it comes with the job. Um, but today, Paul continues this line of thought, and re let's remember, it's very important actually to remember this in a text like this, because Paul is dealing with very particular questions and issues from the Corinthians. The Corinthians have written to him, and he, uh, he acknowledges that in here. I'm, I'm responding to the things you wrote me. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote me. So he's getting some reports about some things that are not so great in, in, uh, in Corinth. But he's also responding to questions they have about literal, practical applications, implications of life within the kingdom. 
Don't forget, these are relatively new converts. Converts to, you know, this is not like second generation. Many, you know, even, even for us, even some of you are first generation Christians within your family. You know, your family wasn't Christian. Many of you are second and maybe even longer generation Christians. Um, so I'm a second generation. My, my mom and dad converted to the faith. Um, but, but we also live in a land that, I don't know, it's in the air. Even though we're, we're, we're moving at, at a rapid pace away from our heritage, nonetheless, it's, it, it's, it takes a long time to get a Christianized worldview out of the culture. It's, it's, it's baked in in so many ways, even just in the mores and the morals of the expectations of a, of a culture. It's there. But for the Corinthians, it's radically different. It's radically new. Everything is upside down. Every question is having to be thought out. Every decision is having to be wrestled with. Is this a, is this a pagan way of dealing with it? What's the Christian way? And, and misunderstandings of the Christian's way. And we've been looking at many of those things. And here now, again, we continue the issue of sex and the issue of marriage. What does it mean to live as a Christian in a world in which... There are sexual passions, and sex, and we are sexual beings. Like, what has changed? What's different? What does it mean for decisions that we have to make in our lives with one another? As single men and women, as married men and women, as widowed men and women, what are the decisions that we have to make? And so Paul addresses this issue. Now, we have in the very beginning a statement that is most likely made from the Corinthians to him. Okay, not a statement he is making um, himself. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The idea here is that Paul is acknowledging that the, you have said this. You're, you're writing to me saying it's not good for a man to touch a woman. Like you're putting that to me and asking for the implications of this. So this is not a statement, a declaration Paul is making that, look, sex is not good. Because when he's talking here about man to touch a woman, he's not, he's not talking in some um, Middle Eastern way that th there can literally be no, no physical contact. He's, it's a euphemism for sexuality. And he's saying... You've said to me that it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. So that's the line. Now you have some in Corinth, right? And we've already kind of acknowledged this, that within the Greek world, you really have people falling into two ditches. And both of these ditches that people fall into in the Greek world come from a bad belief. The bad belief at the core of much of Greek thinking was that the body... The material world, in fact, is not good, maybe even evil. That God is spirit, and as such, he is disconnected from the material world, has nothing to do with the material world. The material world is an unfortunate reality that is temporal, fleeting, will burn up in a ball of fire and be gone, and everything will go back to the way it's supposed to be, which is pure, ethereal spirit. As such, the material world really is unfortunate. We wish we didn't have to endure this, but we do. The Greeks viewed the body as the, quote, prison house of the soul. But the soul is the real you. The soul is the real thing. The soul is the, the pure thing. And the body is the unfortunate thing that carries the soul around for a time. But it really is unfortunate that we have to have these material bodies. Because look at them after all. 
they fall apart, they break, they're failing. It's just, it, it, the body is where we get all these sensual desires that make a mess of things and muddy the waters of relationships and all those kinds of things. If Just imagine if we didn't have to worry about food, for example, or clothing, or these kinds of things. I mean, think about how much time we spend laboring for such things. You know, our work, like we get anxious about work because we have to eat. We have to have a roof over our heads. We have to have clothes on our body, you know. And so we, we the, the, the Greeks look at that and say, isn't that a shame? I mean, it's a shame that we have to spend so much energy there. Just think if we could just delight in the, in the ethereal. Imagine if we could just delight in the spiritual. Imagine if we could just delight in the world of ideas and not have to spend so much time worrying about our cars and getting them fixed and paying our taxes and going to work. And, you know, it's like, imagine. So this material world is a broken, fleeting, unfortunate thing that holds us back. And really then, how do we handle it? And the Greek, so that, that's, that's, from a Christian point of view, that's erroneous. We do not believe that as Christians. We do not believe that the material world is an unfortunate thing that we have to endure. We don't believe that because in the very beginning when God created the world, what did he say about it? He, he made the material world and then he declared benediction on it. He said, it is good. It is good. It is good. And when he was done, he said, behold, it is very good. And so as Christians, we do not have that perspective of the material world. We do not view the body as a prison house. We, we view the body as a blessing. It's not that one day we will be freed from this body, that this prison house will finally be broken down and the spirit can fly free. And we know this because Jesus rose from the dead and his physical body came out of the grave and he stuck his hands out to the disciples and said, hey, it's me, touch these wounds if you want. Then we have anything to eat around here. And he went back to eating. He was material. His, he got his body back, glorified and transformed. The weakness and the frailty removed, but he got his body back. And, and in that, then, we develop a theology of the body. We develop a theology of the material world. It is blessed by God. It's broken. It is crumbling. We'll, we'll read that. And Paul gets into it in the text for next week, that this age is fleeting and passing away. But the body of the material world is good. And a blessing from God. And to be used for the glory of God. And to be enjoyed. And that the pleasures of the body are not to be despised or shunned. But they are gifts to us from God. By which we should rejoice in our maker. That's a Christian perspective. But the Greeks did not have that. The Greeks believed the body was unfortunate. It was a problem. It was a holdback. It, it, it held us back from greatness. And therefore... What do you do about it? And again, they fell into one of two ditches. On the one hand, they said, therefore, you should abstain from everything. Do not give into it. It's a distraction. You have urges and you should put them to death. You don't give into the pleasures of the body. Be stern with the body. And so many Greeks took an ascetic approach in which we are going to delight in the pleasures of the soul and we are not going to give in to the pleasures of the body. And then you had others who say, well, since the body's already evil, it doesn't matter what you do, so let it rip. 
<laughs> right? Because you can't do anything good with the body anyway, so you might as well give the body what it wants because it's all evil anyway. Okay, that was that was the that was the perspective most of the the early Roman and Greek college students took. They took that approach. Right? They, they, it was big on college campuses in those days. Okay, uh, the 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 let it fly approach. Okay, but then also many of the adult Greeks also found that approach very attractive as well. Well, it was either one of these, right? Because it doesn't matter what you do with the body. And Paul has been dealing with this. Paul has been dealing with both approaches. Okay? And now he's coming, in chapter 7, he's dealing with the approach of the abstinence. That, hey, okay, as, as Christians then, as those within the kingdom, Paul, let us get this straight, right? It's not good for a man to touch a woman. And many Christians did hold this, you know, even, even Augustine himself uh, had, had a, a much more uh, aesthetic view of sexual relations. But that's the theme that Paul is riffing off of here. He's taking on this idea of sexuality being bad from a heavenly kingdom perspective, and therefore man should not touch a woman. And he's going to deal here with four issues underneath that. And they're kind of related, but they, they, they spring out of this. First of all, then, the first issue he deals with is, therefore, within marriage, there should be sexual abstinence. That even within marriage, husbands and wives should not have sexual relations with one another. Because, again, this is giving into these physical passions, and we should not be doing that. Our, our minds and hearts should be set on, on spiritual things. So Paul's going to confront that. Secondly, that widows, therefore, ought to remain widows. They should not, hey, you've, you've been freed from that sexual relationship, and now you should remain in that condition and not uh, seek another spouse. Paul's, Paul will deal with that. Thirdly, that uh, if, in fact, this sexuality is an issue, good for you to divorce. Get out of the marriage if you just can't uh, uh, have sexual relations with this person or you're feeling uh, in fact, that this your spouse wants to have sexual relations, but you feel compelled not to, that you should get out of the marriage. So divorce in that case. And then finally, if you are married to an unbeliever, uh, that you should get out of that marriage uh, because it's impure. So these are the four, the four unusual points of a sermon today uh, that we need to deal with. So let's jump right in in, in chapter one, uh, in chapter seven, but verse two and see what he says. So he's dealing with this fact that they're saying to him, it's not good for a man to touch a woman. And he says, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband and let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. So notice right at the outset, Paul comes along and says, no, I disagree. I disagree with the premise that it is not good for a man to touch a woman. Now, on the one hand, he does say, yes, in terms of sexual immorality, that's true. Outside the bonds of marriage, yes, that's true. Again, Paul guards himself from two ditches. On the one hand, he is going to want to say sex is a good thing. But on the other hand, he's going to say, but this good thing has its bounds, right? It has its limitations. It has its places of appropriateness. And yes, we need to guard ourselves from sexual immorality. Right? No, it's not a, hey, just let it rip mentality, but it's also not, you must abstain in all situations. Uh, but it requires, it requires appropriate thinking. So Paul says, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman 
her own husband. He'll say later, and we'll get it in the text next week too. He's actually going to say, on the one hand, hey, celibacy is a good thing. Celibacy is a good thing. Singleness is a good thing. It's a very unusual thing for a Greek to say, but he's going to say it in its proper place. However, if it leads to sexual immorality, then one must get married, that there's an appropriate place for this. So, so let each husband render to his wife the affection due her, again, euphemisms for their relationships with one another, and likewise also the wife to her husband. But here, here's the point that was, again, comes across uh, as very offensive uh, to our culture in verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, again, what's shocking about, and you've got, to, you've got to think about this not as a 21st century American, but think about it as a first century Greek. That statement right there in many ways would not have been offensive within that culture. The guys would have been like, darn straight. All right, <laughs> that's what they, they would have been saying, yeah. What's offensive in the first century is the next line he says. Now, to us in our culture, this is offensive. We're like, what do you, what do you mean? The woman does not have her authority over her body. The husband does? What in the world is that about? So that's offensive right from the get-go. So we don't like anybody. Nobody has authority over my body except me. I am my own. I will decide everything about me. I'll decide my sexuality. I'll decide who I have relations with. I will decide what my gender is. I will decide what I will be for a living. I, I, it's me, me, me. I am the captain of my own destiny. No one has authority over me, period. So what Paul says here in chapter, in verse four, is offensive to everybody. But in the Greco-Roman world, it's the next line that was offensive within his world. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Whoa, hey, hold on now. That's where Paul is saying, this is what marriage is. Indeed, your bodies are not your own. You've been bought with a price. But this applies down into our relationships as well. And I think in some sense, it's not only marriage. We could apply this out to, you know, what that means in the, in the business world when we, when we have employers and employees. What does it mean for, for parents and children? All the relationships that Paul deals with. But here he's dealing primarily with husbands and wives. Think about what a crazy thing that is to say. Women, you, wives, you do not have authority over your body. The husband does. Your body is for your husband. Oh, but men, you do not have authority over your body. Your body is for your wife. And it is this, as Mark prayed or mentioned, this mutual submission that Christianity calls for. I was just listening to an interview with Pastor Doug Wilson in uh, Moscow, Idaho. He, he was interviewed by uh, uh, NBC, um, some, some show M uh, NBC was doing, and they interviewed him and the work he's doing out in Moscow, Idaho. And one of the, one of the little snag points for this, for this interviewer in some of his teaching and so forth was this idea of submission within marriage. And I get that, right? Non-believers hear Christians say that. And again, in our culture, it's just... And she said, why can't there be equality? And when you say that kind of thing, it just shows you don't understand the biblical idea of submission. There is, there is equal submission within the relationship of marriage. Each is the other's. 
when one joins himself in marriage, what is happening is they're saying, okay, I'm willing not to be my own. I'm willing to be yours. I am willing to say, you have authority over my body. You have authority over me. But it's mutual. It's not merely the wife saying, okay, I, 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 my body is yours. That's how it's heard, right? My body's yours. The husband can do whatever he wants. No, that's not, that's not what's going on here. There is a mutual self-giving, a mutual submission, a mutual acknowledgement that my life is not my own. But now, even in this marriage, as we prayed for Tim and Ann Davis, that their marriage would be an enacted living sermon of what Christ and his church is like. So that's what we sign up for when we sign up for marriage. And Paul is saying, no, there's, there's no, no, you do not have to be abstinent within the marriage. In fact, we give ourselves one to another. He says it even stronger in verse 5. Do not deprive one another then, except with consent for a time. And so even in this sexual abstinence within marriage, he's saying don't, don't do that to one another. Unless there's a time of fasting or prayer, look, you need some time to, to clear your head and, and, and spend some time fasting and prayer. Okay, the two of you agree that way we'll, we'll abstain. But, but, but don't do that. Don't deprive one another except for consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again then so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession not as a commandment. So again, Paul challenges the first thing. No, no, it's not true that it's not good for a man to touch a woman. It is utterly appropriate for a man to touch a woman so long as it's not in sexual immorality, but within the healthy bonds of marriage. This mutual self-giving is what marriage is about. Then he continues in verse 7. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, i.e. single, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That is to say, and we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm not going to spend time here because I'm going to deal with it next week, Paul's idea of singleness. Notice he, he, he calls it a gift. Right? He calls it a gift. And he says, it would be best if you could do that. It'd be best if you could remain single as I am. And if so, then do it. And we'll talk about it next week. There's a certain freedom and an ability to love Christ and his church that the single person has. An ability that they have that the married person does not. As beautiful a thing as marriage is, it comes with its own challenges, right? As beautiful a thing as having children is, it comes with its own challenges, right? Running to and fro to this event and that event. You know, part of the weekend, part of the reason a weekend gets torn apart is because there's all kinds of responsibilities and those responsibilities grow as you have a wife and as you have children and as you have connections through them that require things of you that keep you from loving the church, and serving the church in a way that you might otherwise do it. And Paul says, I wish that you could all be like me, but but if you can't, better not to burn in passion, because again, flee sexual immorality. 
We thought about that last week. Flee it. If that means, hey, we need to pursue marriage, then we pursue it. Verse 10. Now, to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus said this. That's all he's doing. He's saying, I'm, I'm not, I'm not merely, I'm not, merely is not the right word. I'm not saying this from apostolic authority. I am literally now quoting the Lord. In the next case, I'm going to say this as an apostle. I'm not quoting the Lord. I'm speaking under my apostolic authority. But here I'm not speaking under apostolic authority. I'm just quoting the Lord. Now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. And we read that in uh, Matthew chapter five today. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, now he's saying now here, I'm speaking on apostolic authority. I'm not quoting the Lord anymore. He's not wanting to put words in the Lord Jesus' mouth. So he's not saying now this doesn't carry the same weight. He's an apostle. He's, a, he's, he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's saying, I'm saying this now. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. Okay, so we've got a couple things here. One, again, the call not to divorce. If in fact, if in fact marriage is a living sermon of the love of Christ for his church, then you see why divorce is so ugly. Now, Paul doesn't get into the specific, the exceptions of, well, unless this and unless that. The Lord Jesus does. Where there is uh, uh, adultery, the Bible says divorce is allowable from the man or from the woman. And we even see that in the Old Testament as God divorces Israel. But th there's, a, there's a warning to us. Don't you be spiritually sexually immoral, right? Don't you be a spiritual adulterer. Don't you go after other gods. Because to go after other gods is like a man who goes after other women. The wife may divorce him. Or a woman who flirts and goes with another man. The, ma the husband may di divorce her. Right, That sexual immorality, that adultery within marriage allows for divorce. Same, true, same is true spiritually. In the spiritual sense, when Israel goes after other gods, other lovers as he calls them, and I was going to read Ezekiel 16, but we've, we've read that. Go read that. You know, God comes to Israel. I loved you. I raised you up. I married you. I gave you everything. And then you took the wealth that I gave you and you started to go out and spend it on other lovers. You spent it on other gods. You gave the affection that was due to me alone to other gods. Therefore, I'll divorce you. It's a very hard thing to hear God say. Or go read the prophet Hosea. He makes this point. So it's not that there are no possibilities where divorce is allowable. Jesus goes into those exceptions. But Paul's not going there right now. Paul is speaking about marriage in general. And he's saying where there is divorce within marriage, what does it do to the sermon that is there for the world? Christ loved his church and gave him up, himself up for her. The, the church submits to her head Christ. There is this union 
of I'm not my own, I am for you. And then we split. What happens to the sermon? What happens to the declaration to the world? Paul is challenging us to care about that. It, it adds weight to the commitment that we make in marriage that breaks it from being one of mere convenience, that breaks it from being one of, am I getting what I want out of this? Just like, again, this takes us back to the business of the, the sexuality and your body is not your own. Paul takes sex and he turns it right around. It's not about am I getting what I want out of this. It's am I giving what is due. Am I giving what my spouse needs? It's, it's an other-oriented thing in sexuality and even in marriage. But if we view our bodies as our own, if we view our bodies, and this isn't just for marriage, this isn't life in general, we will be self-centered people. And as Americans, frankly, we tend to be this because we're, we're a rights-based society. Not that rights are bad. It's not me speaking against rights. Praise God for them. Very happy for them. But a rights-based society that's always, well, I have a right. It's my right. I have a right to this. Rights are about me. And you start to have a lens of the world that's about me, me, me. You're not giving me what I deserve. And Paul, in this very text, mainly through the lens of marriage, is flipping that around on its side. It's saying, maybe we need to stop thinking about, are you getting what you deserve? And the answer is, am I giving what I owe? That's the challenge here. And so he says, do not. Don't. Depart. You say, yeah, but, but what about, I, I've got an unbelieving spouse. I've got an unbelieving spouse. And perhaps even as the Corinthians wrote, to them, that was the point, but I have an unbelieving spouse. I, I've become a Christian now. I, I'm unequally yoked. And Paul, you're the one who said, don't be unequally yoked. And Paul would say, yes, all things considered, don't be unequally yoked. Don't even go down the road with a non-believer. I just told my students that the other day. I'm like, don't even go out. Don't write the one little note, <laughs> the love note to the non-believer. Don't invite the non-believer for coffee. You know, don't do it. I'm talking about the members of the opposite sex now. Because what will come out, what can come out, what good can come out of that? But you start to be attracted and now down the road you go and now you've got yourself in a real situation of every day it becomes more and more difficult to undo. So Paul would challenge us and say, don't be unequally yoked. But you become a believer and you are unequally yoked. You become a believer and your spouse is an unbeliever. What do you do? Paul says, don't walk. Live in peace. If at all possible, as long as you are able, live in peace with your spouse. You will be a blessing to him. You will be a blessing to her. And for the sake of your children. Your children, because, and this is a beautiful, this is a very Presbyterian verse. This is a verse that we as Presbyterians love very much because we baptize our babies. And we baptize our babies because, at least in part, because of this verse. Because you are a Christian, your children are holy. 
because you are a Christian, your children are holy. As Presbyterians, as Reformed folk, we do not view our children as little pagans who one day we hope get converted. <laughs> we know they need a personal relationship with Jesus. We know that. Being in the covenant doesn't mean you have a personal relationship with Jesus. We know they need that. We want them to give their hearts to the Lord, no doubt. But we do not view our children as those outside the covenant, and we long for the day when they come in the covenant. Paul here says, your children are holy just because they're born to you. My kids are holy. Holy doesn't, in this case, holy does not mean they're sinless. It doesn't mean righteous. It just means set apart. My children have been set apart to God simply by birth. Because they were born to Bill and Christina Spanger who are Christians. And so they were born into the covenant community. They were born into the church. Do they need to personally have a living faith with Jesus? Absolutely. Do we pray for that? Yes. Do we cultivate that as parents? Yes. But our parent, our children are not viewed as outsiders to the covenant. They are born inside of it. And therefore, all the promises of the covenant are to them. And hence, also, the gifts of the covenant. Baptism is given to them. But as we said before, we won't turn this into a table talk. Because one is baptized doesn't mean they're automatically going to heaven. It's just a sign and a seal of the covenant of God. A sign and a seal of the promises of God and the warnings of God to them. But it's a gift to those within the covenant, adults or children. To all who are holy, all who are set apart from the world within this covenant community. And as such, you, even as a single believer, married to an unbeliever, your children are holy. And your spouse is blessed to be married to you. You could tell them that, right? You can do the... You, <laughs> you see other ways. It's a tremendous blessing to be married to me, right? <laughs> well, some things we can just keep within... You know, within the wall. We'll keep, keep amongst ourselves. But it's a, it's a blessing. Yes, but it's a blessing because the unbelieving spouse, the unbelieving spouse is sanctified, is being blessed, is being set apart in some ways by the believer. And then he asks this, but if the unbeliever departs, and this is hard to hear because, again, it's, 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 there, there's, there's love and there's connection and there's relationship if the unbeliever departs he's telling the corinthians because they're wrestling with this look if the unbeliever says i don't want to be married to you because you're a christian let him go a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases so there's that exception for the separation where it's abandonment but god has called us to peace for how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband or how do you know a husband, whether you will save your wife? And he means that both ways. On the one hand, clinging and holding on and fighting for the marriage, he's saying there's no guarantee you'll save your husband or save your spouse. If they leave, they leave. But on the other hand, on the positive sense, this is why you don't seek the divorce automatically because it's unbelieving. Because who knows? Who knows how the Lord will use this relationship? So Paul challenges us here. Again, what, the great thing about 1 Corinthians, I, I encourage you to go back and read it. Not all these circumstances relate to every one of us in this room, right? But it's 
But what Paul is giving us is kingdom wisdom. Kingdom commands, in fact, more than just wisdom. He's giving us kingdom commands. But how we think about sexuality, how we think about the body, how we think about marriage, how we think about singleness, how we think about our spouses, how we think about our children, how we think about widows, how we think about those who are young and unmarried, all of these things Paul is challenging us. And he, again, he's challenging us, I think, from Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. You cannot approach these questions like Americans. You must approach these questions as Christians. And when you do so, in some ways, it will bring you terrible pain. It's easy. The American way is easy. Because the American way says when it gets inconvenient, either satisfy the urge or get rid of the pain. That's the American way. The biblical way is embrace the pain. Oh, your right hand's causing you sin? Cut it off. Who talks like that? Who talks like that? The, the Christian way is your body's not your own. It's actually your spouse's. So think about what you can give to your spouse, being that this is theirs. And the spouse ought to be thinking that way as well. The, the Christian way is painful. But the Christian way is also blessed. It's the Christian way of thinking that actually leads to blessing. Seek first, Jesus said, the kingdom of God. And all these other things will be added to you. The body's good. These things are important. Pain is bad. Okay, we seek to avoid. Seek first the kingdom. What does the kingdom call me to do? Seek that first. All these other things will be added to you. You will be blessed. No man, Jesus said, has ever given up anything for me. For one, what have you given up that you've not been given? But no man's ever given up anything for me that he will not receive back a hundredfold. It's Satan, and even Paul here warns about that satanic temptation. It's Satan who comes in and goes, what are you, an idiot? What are you, an idiot? To say your body's not your own? How stupid is that? You're going to be taken advantage of if you think like that. It's Satan who comes in and says, no, 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 satisfy that urge. It's Satan who comes in and builds distrust. It's Satan who does this. But his way always, always, always leads to death. It promises pleasure. It promises satisfaction. It always leads to death. Christ's way, God's way, looks like death. But always, always, always leads to life. And leads to blessing. If any man seeks to save his life, he must lose it. And if any man loses his life for my sake in the Gospels, he will save it. Let us be careful not to let Satan whisper in our ears in regards to our relationships, our sexuality, any of these things. Let us keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom there's forgiveness for our failings, We've all messed this up. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. Remember, and I meant to say this, we didn't have Sunday school last week, but to refer last week back to that middle section of chapter 6 when Paul lists that list of sins, such that will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, 
you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We're all failures on these things. But we are washed and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. As such then, let us set our minds on Christ and seek to follow Him and obey Him. Let's pray. Father, be with us, we pray, in our relationships, in our singleness, in our marriages, in our widowhood. Father, we ask your mercy. Be with us. Sustain us. You are the source of our joy. Guard us from even placing the fullness of our joy in our spouses, in our children, in our friends, in our parents, in our work. These are all good things. These are all blessings from you. And yet we make idols out of all of them. Forgive us for that, we pray. And in all these things, help us to seek you and your kingdom first, trusting that it and your ways always lead to life. We thank you for that. And we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.